Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting on a chair in my backyard in front of our trampoline, and my youngest son, who had just learned how to land a front flip, asked me to come out and watch him. Now, I was out there, but sitting in that chair, I was also scrolling through my phone, trying to chill out at the end of a long day. Now, don't judge me, because I'm in the midst of a season that has been exceedingly busy, exceedingly stressful, and I mean, it's the kind of thing where I, I go down into my basement to start work at 7 a.m., and by 5 p.m., I'm literally, I'm just clicking things all day, and I just, at last click, I don't even shut down my computer, so it's last click, okay, I gotta go be a father and a husband, and I go upstairs. It's like that kind of thing, full of work, and so at the end of the day, all I really want to do is sit on the couch, just for a few minutes, like, like not long, just a few minutes, and just check out and relax. But on that particular day, my son comes into the room, into my office, and he says, Dad, will you come outside with me? It's 5 p.m., I did my last click. So I say, sure. <laughs> sure, I'll come outside with you. And so he gets on the trampoline, he starts flipping, and I'm looking at my phone, nothing in particular. But I can see in my peripheral vision that every time he flips, his head flips around. Every time he lands it, his head jerks to see if I'm looking. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm looking at my phone. And so he says, Dad, look. So I put my phone down, I look up, and he flips, and he lands it. I'm like, that's great. And I go back to what I'm doing on my phone. And he flips again, head jerks around. Dad, look. And I, mean, I don't know if you've ever watched a seven-year-old flip on a trampoline, but there's only so many times that you can watch that act with rapt attention. <laughs> but again, the head flips around, and he says, Dad, look. And in that moment, my mind is flooded with dozens of memories. I can see myself standing on the coffee table in our rundown apartment complex, at six years old in Smyrna, Georgia. I'm standing on the coffee table and I've got a television remote control in my hand, pointing it at my mouth, and I'm reciting lines from the comedy special Bill Cosby himself. <laughs> Those were the days when it was okay to like Bill Cosby, but 
I loved Bill Cosby, and I loved that special. I was six years old, I probably didn't get most of it, but I stood on the table and I recited those lines, and there was my mom laughing so hard at what I was doing, and all was well in my life. And then I remembered, fast forward to the time when I was in high school theater. There's a picture from those days of me as a high school senior with all of the cast of a play that I was in standing at the edge of the stage, hands clasped, up in the air, ready to do the final bow, and everybody in the audience is on their feet and they're clapping, and oh, that kind of attention. It was the golden age of my life. It was marvelous. Then fast forward, I remembered planting a church when I was 28 years old. And I, you know, I had no money to do this, no funding, no training, no denomination to back me up. But I said, and these words literally come out of my mouth to the people who, you know, the few people who decided to join me. I said, you know what? We don't need any of that. Just give me a place to preach. And they'll come running. Now, spoiler alert, that did not work out. (laughs) But it was just one more time where I just, I knew if I could just get people to pay attention, all would be well. And then I thought about 2009, standing in the kitchen of our way too small starter home, arguing with my father. We had been tense for months leading up to that because we were trying to figure out what are the real boundaries of our relationship. And we just had a son and throw him into the mix, first child, things got infinitely more complicated. And standing there in the kitchen, arguing with my father with raised voices, it became abundantly clear we were not gonna see eye to eye on this. And so, he walked over to the table, picked up a gift bag, because he was over there for his birthday. He walked to the door and he said, we're done. And he walked out. Now, the next day, it's time for work. I walk out of my house. And off in my peripheral vision, I can see there's some trash in my yard out in the woods. I shouldn't be there. And so I walk over there to see what it is. I pick it up. It's the gift bag, along with the gift inside of it. Apparently, in his anger, he had walked out and with a great amount of oomph, threw it as far as he could. And I felt like standing there holding that, that he had thrown our relationship off in the woods as well. And true to his word, 13 years later, today, not a text, not an email, not a phone call, nothing. And as I'm remembering these things, I hear it again. Dad, look! That's when I realize that from Bill Cosby, all the way through the rest of my life. 
all I've been doing is running around trying my hardest to find the loving attention of a father. I didn't have it when I was six years old because of divorce. I rarely saw him. And I didn't have it later in my adult life because he chose to leave. And that's when I realized I don't have that. But I can give that to my son. And so he says, Dad, look. So I put my phone in my pocket and I watch him flip and I say, Oh, buddy, that's amazing. Let me see it again. Now, last week, Matt started a new series. We're talking about rhythms, talking about how it is that we give ourselves over to rhythms and live the life that invites flourishing. He talked about worship last week, and he just said that the reason why he talked about that is why there's so many people here. So, you know, that's great. That's great. It's application. Now, it falls to me to talk about the rhythm of prayer. And I would argue that prayer is probably the most important rhythm that we're going to talk about. Not that the other ones aren't important, but I think prayer is the most important rhythm because prayer is the central act of the Christian life. Let me say that again. Prayer is the central act of the Christian life. Now, somebody might object and say, well, what about reading Scripture? Aren't we supposed to read the Scriptures? And I would say, well, yeah, of course, that's important. However, I would say prayer is more central than reading Scripture. Let me explain. Suppose you were a medieval peasant in Europe. If you were in that situation... You would be illiterate. And the only way, you would also be a Christian because you lived in Europe and everybody was a Christian uh, in those days. And, And you would go to church every week. You would go to Mass. And you would hear the priest say the Mass in Latin. So you couldn't, you couldn't understand anything. You couldn't read any of the scriptures. And even if you could read, even if you were literate, all the copies of the scriptures were super expensive because they were copied by hand. And some of, and in many cases, like the only copies they had were in the church or chained to a desk at the monastery. So you could not, you could not read these things for yourself. The only thing you had in that situation was prayer. And so prayer is the most central act of the Christian life. Now, our lives, clearly, much different than medieval Europe. That's abundantly clear. We, we do have our own copies of the scriptures. We, do, we can do that. However, I would say prayer is still the central act, and therefore, we must give ourselves to prayer. Now, in order to understand that, I want to go back to what we read at the beginning, the teaching of our Lord. I want to talk about three things. Number one, that he invites us to pray without striving. Number two, he invites us to pray that we might receive a reward. And then third, we're going to see how Jesus is the victor of our prayers. Then we're going to talk about how that all fits into a rhythm. So, number one, he invites us to pray without striving. 
Look at verse 7. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Okay, now Jesus is addressing three errors here that were prevalent in the pagan world at that day, in, the, in those days. Number one, they believed that you, if you were able to pronounce the name of whatever God you were praying to, if you were able to pronounce that name properly, then in that way, you were able to gain power over that God and require that God to do your bidding. That was one error that he's addressing. And Jesus says, no, no, God has told you his name. And all power belongs to him. The second error that Jesus is contending with here is the very real problem in the pagan world, in a polytheistic world, is which God should I be praying to in this situation? And so, in order to solve this problem, what pagans would do is sort of buckshot prayer. Like, I'll pray to all the gods, and hopefully, at least, if I cover all the possibilities, some god, I'm going to get it right at some point. I'm going to say the, the right prayer to the right God at some point, and that God will do what I ask. If I say enough words, now that, that would cost an awful lot of time and an awful lot of words, most of them being meaningless because only one God counted. The third error that Jesus is uh, contending with is that they really believed that they had to inform their gods about their situation. The, the Greek and then the Roman pantheon of gods, they, they were not omniscient. They were not all-knowing. They did have to be informed about the situations of the people who were praying to them. But Jesus says in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He says the God of the Bible is all-powerful, and therefore there is no chance of pronouncing his name correctly and gaining power over him, gaining the advantage over him. He is all-powerful. You're not even close. And number two, he knows everything. He knows what you need before you even ask him. You don't need to inform him about anything. He has numbered the hairs on your head. Not only does he know the large movements of the world and of our lives, he knows the number of hairs on your head. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus taught us, without his knowledge. He knows what you need. Therefore, Jesus says, in light of that reality, okay, how do you pray? He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He knows what you need. He, he understands all that is going on in our lives. Therefore, the simplicity of this prayer is all that is required. Now, there's an endless debate that has been going on over the centuries uh, over whether these words are like 
actual words that we say? Are Je- is Jesus saying, these are the, the actual words that you put in your mouth and say to me? Or is this sort of like a model prayer? Like, this is the kind of prayer that you might pray. And to me, that debate is ridiculous. Uh, because Jesus has already told us, like, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't, don't repeat endlessly repeat words that have no meaning in order to get the attention of God or make sure that he knows your situation. So, of course, that would apply to this prayer as well. This prayer could be used in this way. Like, like we have actual words here. Could, could you take a whole day off and just say this prayer over and over and over again and, some, and, and feel like by doing this, you are somehow gaining influence with God? Of course, you could do that. But that is the error of the Gentiles. But I would say, Jesus doesn't tell us one way or another. But this prayer and these words can be used and can be prayed with devotion. I mean, there's some magnificent petitions in here, like hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Like forgive us our trespasses. We, like these are magnificent. Like, we, if you've grown up in the church or even if you haven't, you probably have heard this prayer before and it's almost it's almost become common, but my goodness, when you take a moment and you step back and you look at it, this is a marvelous prayer. And Jesus says, pray like this. And so in giving us this prayer, Jesus is doing two things. Number one, he says, you can pray without anxiety. You can pray without anxiety of wondering is, is God going to hear me? Is, is God going to move on my behalf? Is God, he, you can pray without all of that anxiety. Why? Because he says, he knows you. He sees you. He understands you. Not only you, but you in relation to everyone else and in the geopolitical, every, he understands it all. He knows it intimately. The Father sees us. The Father knows us. And the second thing he's teaching us is that prayer is the simplest of all acts. Not only is it the most central, but it is the simplest of all acts. It's a child lifting his or her eyes to the heavens and pouring out their heart, and that's it. Now right here are all the books that I pulled off my shelf this morning that are devoted exclusively to prayer. It's a lot of books. Now I had other books that have chapters or sections on prayer. I didn't include those. These are all just devoted to prayer and I've read them all. And I want to tell you, this is not, this is, I'm not here to show off. I'm here to tell you, I have read all of these books, some of them classics of Christian literature. And when I bow my knees to pray, I feel lost. 
I feel like a kindergartner. And in, in a lot of ways, I, I have accumulated this many books and I've devoted this, many t- this much time to reading all of them because I think, because, precisely because I feel so inept, precisely because I feel like so lost, and I think somebody's gotta have the answer here. Somebody has to say it in just the right way so that it unlocks the mystery of prayer and I get it. Maybe that book exists, but I haven't read it. But what Jesus says is, you don't have to be a scholar to pray. You don't have to have read all the books to pray. Even the guy who's read all the books barely knows how to pray. (laughs) He says it's simple. Put these words in your mouth. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus teaches us first that we must pray without striving. Second, he says that we must pray in order to receive a reward. I know that sounds weird, but that's exactly what he tells us here. Look at verse 5. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Make no mistake, Jesus is incentivizing our prayers with reward. That's astonishing. Like, okay, what, what is the reward? Let, let's start there. What is the actual reward? Because it doesn't say, it's like, go into your room, pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward? You get a good feeling? You get, like, tingles? Like, what, what, is, what is actually the reward? Well, it's pretty clear that when you compare what the reward is for the hypocrites that he talks about, it becomes very clear. What is their reward? To be seen by others. To be adored by others for their great prayers. They pray in order that they might be seen. Now, you know what that means just like I know what that means. If you've ever prayed in a group with other people, like I have, and you're saying something, every once in a while, something magical happens. You get one of these. Mmm. You know what I'm I'm talking about. And I tell you what, I know you guys are more spiritual than me, but when I hear that, I I am out of the prayer immediately. I'm like scrolling back through what I just said. How can I get one of those again? Because that is my, so I just said something, and it's like, "Mm." like, it's like, you know, you feel it. (laughs) And what Jesus is saying here is, okay, like I hope you enjoyed that. That's your reward. If, if, if that's what you're focused on, that is your reward. But Jesus teaches us, go into your room, pray, 
and you will have a more durable reward. And what is that reward? Well, if the reward of hypocrites is to be seen by others, then the reward of those who pray in secret is to be seen by their Father in heaven. To those who go into their closets and pray to the Father, they will receive the loving attention of their Father. And that's what I've been longing for all of my life, from standing on the coffee table reciting Bill Cosby to my theater days to planting a church. In all of those occasions, I'm like, Dad, look! And since the day I found that gift lying in the woods, I have been running around ceaselessly everywhere I could find. Dad, look. Dad, look. And to a large degree, that has been denied me. But here, Jesus is teaching us that when you go into your room, you get on your knees and you pray, you have a reward. And that reward is the loving attention of your Father. It's astonishing. Now, third, we need to talk about how Jesus is the victor of our prayers. We've talked about, we've looked at how he's taught us to pray, but there's something even more significant here. If you're like me, you're both moved by this teaching of Jesus, but also confounded at the same time. Like when I pray, I mean, I believe what Jesus says here. You will be rewarded. But when I pray, it feels a lot more like darkness. It feels a lot more like absence. It feels a lot more like nothing. <laughs> so my question is, if the promised reward of prayer is the loving attention of my Father in heaven, what is that attention supposed to feel like? And the answer is, I'm sorry to say, Jesus does not tell us. He, he, he does not have anything to say about what it is supposed to feel like. Therefore, this reward that Jesus promises us must be taken as an article of faith. We have the loving attention of our Father because Jesus said when we pray, we have the loving attention of our Father. But how can we trust Jesus on that count? How, how, how do we know that he's telling the truth? Well, two reasons. Number one, because of his cross. Suppose you were a disciple on the day when Jesus was being crucified. And you think back to all the three years, three and a half years that you've spent with him, beholding his own prayers, seeing how he related to his father. And, and it was such an intimate attention that the father of heaven gave his only son that it created something in you that was about to explode. And so you said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
Whatever you have there, I also, we also want that. And that was the occasion for this teaching, at least in the Gospel of Luke. No one had the Father's attention, the Father's loving attention like Jesus. We contrast that to our own prayers, and that same desire comes erupting out of us. Lord, teach us to pray. And then there on that day when he was being crucified, you can see him. You know the intimacy that he has with his father. You know the loving attention that God has given to his only son. And there he hangs on a cross of wood being executed by the Romans. And he begins to pray. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that is an impossibility in my mind. That is an impossibility as a disciple in in all of our minds. God cannot forsake his only son. For all these three years that we followed him, he has had such an intimate relationship with him. But you know what happens. He calls out to his father, and the sky grows black, and the heavens are turned into iron. There is no response. And as you see this, you know Jesus did not deserve that kind of response. You and I, and all the disciples that have ever come before, we deserved to have heaven shut in our faces. Jesus Christ, the innocent one, did not, and yet the heavens were closed to him. And he did that for us. He put himself in the place of being forsaken of his Father's loving attention so that you and I and all who believe in him would never have to be. That's the first reason we can trust what he says on this. Second reason is because three days later, he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of his Father. We learn from Hebrews 11 that what he is doing there is never ceasing to intercede for those whom he loves. And what that means is that he takes all of these weak, half-hearted, broken, tangled, misshapen prayers that we offer up and he takes them and he remolds them into something beautiful and presents them to the Father. And he does that ceaselessly. He never ceases to, make, to, to fail to make intercession for us. He is always at it, turning our prayers into something beautiful in the Father's sight. And that's, what, that's why it's so important. That's why Paul emphasizes so much in the New Testament that we are in Christ. Because the fact that we are in Christ, that means that we have the Father's loving attention. The Father never ceases to adore his Son at his right hand. He never 
shuts his face. He never turns away his attention. And in Christ, that has been given to us. And for someone like me, who's been running around all of his life saying, Dad, look, that is the pearl of great price for which my heart has always longed, the loving attention of a father. Now, briefly, how do we make this into a rhythm? There's not much prescription in the scriptures for this. Paul, the apostle, says that we pray at all times, which doesn't mean you spend all of your time praying. We have jobs, we have to work, we do, yes. But that any time is a time that is appropriate for prayer. That's what he means. Or if you go back to the Psalms, Psalms 4 and 5, give us a morning-evening rhythm. You wake up in the morning, you call out to the Father. You go to sleep at night, you run through your day, and you say, thank you, Father. That's, that's about all we get. And in those moments, the length is not prescribed. Remember, Jesus told us to pray like this, and then he gave us something that could be said in like under a minute. The duration is not what counts. It is the devotion that counts. The only rule is that prayer, this gift that we've been given of the Father's loving attention, is not there to justify, but as a means by which the justified receive the reward of their Father's attention. Now, we come to the table as we do every single week. And I said prayer is the central act of the Christian life. And I stand by that. But if you were a peasant in medieval Europe, prayer isn't the only thing you would have for your devotion. You also have this meal. And here at this meal, it was so important to Jesus. The night before he died, he gave his disciples bread. He gave his disciples a cup. And he said, drink this and remember me. And when we come to this table, and when we come praying, we come in an attitude of repentance. Here, too, we have the Father's loving attention. So, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this table is for you, the beloved of the Lord. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.